You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses, great resources, and a wonderfully supportive writing community who are kicking goals all over the place. So I love seeing how everyone's doing. As you know, I usually co-host this podcast every week with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate. Her latest book is The Wolf's How. This is one of our in-between episodes where we leave Alison to do her authory deeds and we listen to a story session, just you and me and our guest author of the week. This week, I've chosen It's Not You, It's Me by Gabrielle Williams. This is the latest young adult novel from Gabrielle, whose previous best-selling books include My Life as a Hashtag, Beetle Meets Destiny, The Reluctant Hallelujah, and The Guy, The Girl, The Artist, and His Ex. Here's the blurb for her latest novel. Holly Fitzgerald has inexplicably woken up inside the body of an L.A. teenager called Trinity Byrne in 1980, trapping Trinity in Holly's 40-year-old body back in Melbourne 2020. Mind officially blown. Holly finds herself navigating a brand new body, family and cute boy next door, not to mention a rock band that might just make it and potential kidnapper. Meanwhile, lies intersect with truth, hurtling both Holly and Trinity towards a dangerous fate as the connections between them grow deeper and stranger than either could have ever imagined. Now, before she reads from her novel, Gabrielle has shared some insight into her inspiration and writing process, because we know that our listeners love to hear the story behind the story. So here is Gabrielle Williams reading from her latest novel, It's Not You, It's Me. Hi out there in podcast land. My name's Gabrielle Williams, and I'm the author of It's Not You, It's Me. Valerie has sent me through some questions that she wants me to answer before I narrate the first chapter of my new book. So, okay, let's uh, get into them. Question number one, what inspired me to write this story? I guess that the, the inspiration from this story, for this story, is an orange enamel typewriter. Um... <laughs> I found this typewriter in an old secondhand shop in the Blue Mountains when I was up there a few years ago doing a, I was awarded a writer's residency at Varuna, which just as a side, a side issue, if you ever get the opportunity to go up to Varuna and do a residency, I really highly recommend it. It's a, just the most fantastic experience. Anyway, so I was up at Varuna and I had this routine each day where I would work on my book and then I would, so I'd get up really early, work on my book and then I would have lunch, walk around to the pool at Katoomba, swim some laps, then walk back through the main street of Katoomba back to Varuna and then just kind of hang out, maybe do a little bit more, dabble a bit more in writing, whatever. On the last day of my residency, I you know, did my routine, I rode in the morning, I had my lunch, I walked to the pool, and then I was walking back down the main street of Katoomba. And I saw this secondhand shop, which I had never noticed before. 
and I went in and was wandering around and I got chatting to the guy who owned it. He said to me, I'll bet you're one of the riders at Varuna. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I've got something that you'll probably be kind of interested in. I said, okay, show me. And he showed me this little orange portable brother typewriter, which I was absolutely not in the market for, I can tell you. But as soon as I saw it, I just kind of went, yeah, I do want that. That is really adorable. It was very charming. It sort of had real personality, the colors divine. And so I bought it, I lugged it back to Melbourne because, uh, and lugged is the appropriate word. The 1970s version of portable is very different from the 2020 idea of portable. Anyway, so I brought this typewriter back to Melbourne and I thought, you know, it would be quite interesting to have a book where a typewriter is the main character or the catalyst somehow for the story. So I guess that that really is where the story started. The typewriter inspired me to write this story. I really liked the idea of a typewriter connecting two characters. And because I knew that the typewriter was from the 1970s, I knew that one of my characters was going to be from the 1970s. And because I had bought it in the late 2010s, I knew that the character, the other character was going to be from 2010. And I just had to figure out how these two characters were going to be connected. Uh, question 1A from Valerie is, can you tell us about the typewriter? And I've got the typewriter here at the moment. So first of all, this is it typing. It's just got the cutest little voice. Listen to that. Is it just not adorable? This is it going, there's the ding, then you go back. It's charming. If you have a look at the typewriter, it's orange, glossy enamel. It has black keys. And on the back, it actually has got a little silver kind of tag, which says Nagoya, Japan. And then it's got a serial number, J9337079. When I bought the typewriter back to Melbourne, I went on to the wonderful world of the internet and I looked up what all of these numbers might mean. And essentially, what it showed me was that this typewriter had been made in July 1979. So when I had that sort of firm date in my head, that also helped me to place the timing or the, the, um, the, the dates of the narrative that I was going to work on. So little by little, this little typewriter kind of started helping me get a handle on timings and where these characters might come from. Now, because the typewriter was actually made in Nagoya, Japan, I originally had the two characters, one being a Japanese girl in 1979 and the other one being a Melbourne woman in the late 2010s. And for various reasons, I did write a few drafts where I had this Japanese character and this Melbourne character. But in the end, for a couple of reasons, I sort of thought it was a bit weird that there was going to be a typewriter which is an English-speaking 
typewriter and there was going to be a Japanese character using it. Just didn't make a lot of sense because obviously um, Japanese typewriters would be using kanji characters. So in order to make sense of why the typewriter, um, to make sense of the typewriter being an English language typewriter, I decided that after it had been made in Nagoya, Japan, it would have been shipped off to America where it was then bought by my main character's um, parents who gave it to her. Because I thought that I wanted to focus the story on a 16-year-old's life in 1980 in Los Angeles because what's not to love about that location and that setting in that time. All right, so um, question number two, can you describe your writing process? All right, my writing process relies a lot on standing in front of the pantry looking in to see what food is there to eat and then when I see there's no food to eat because I'm the one who's in charge of the shopping and I'm not very good at it, then I go and sit back down at my typewriter, at my, sorry, not my typewriter, at my computer and I just make myself write. And I'm not a terribly disciplined writer. I'm very slow. But one thing that I think I do do well is I persevere with the story and I, I write from a genuine place. I write a genuine story that has come to me. I don't try and force a story onto the page. So when I find myself, like interestingly for me, when I find myself standing in front of the pantry too many times in a day, that is a signal to me that this story is not working. So my pantry is my signal that I need to shake up the story and change things around that things aren't working. So I guess my writing process involves a lot of standing in front of the pantry. Uh, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Okay, so... The way that these two characters are connected is through the typewriter. And what ends up happening in at the very start of the book, this is not a spoiler, is that the two main characters, which um, who are Trinity in 1980, the 16-year-old girl in Los Angeles in 1980, and Holly, who is a 40-year-old woman in Melbourne in 2020, they end up swapping souls. So Holly wakes up to find herself in Trinity's body, in 1980 and Trinity wakes up to find herself in Holly's body in 2020. I think the most challenging aspect of writing this book was that I don't actually believe in time travel or soul swaps. So <laughs> while I think they're a really fun device, they're not something that I genuinely, I don't believe them. And, but as a writer, it's really valuable when you don't believe one of your core um, devices in your book because what you have to do then is you have to assume that a lot of your readers are not going to believe it either. So what I had to do was convince myself that it could possibly happen, which then in turn convinces the reader that it could possibly happen. So uh, how do I convince myself that time travel can happen? It's not a matter for me of just making it happen, of shoehorning that concept onto an idea and just assuming that everyone is going to go with me on it. I had to create a perfect storm of events that would make it possible for the universe to intervene and 
create a soul swap event. So, yeah, there was a lot of drafting, a lot of redrafting, a lot of thinking about it, a lot of um, going down paths that didn't end up working. But finally, I found all of the connections between my two characters, which ended with the final event in their lives of the soul swap, but actually the first event in the book, which is the soul swap. So yeah, that probably the most challenging aspect was convincing myself that uh, soul swap could actually happen and working out the detail of how it would come to be. Question number three, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Uh, sorry, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? Sorry, question number four. Well, I think that the most rewarding aspect of writing it was the same thing that was the most challenging. When I had convinced myself that these two characters could swap souls and that the typewriter was the catalyst that made this happen, it was an incredibly rewarding feeling when I just went, I actually believe this could happen. It is a once in a thousand years um, event. And I, in, as you go through the book, you see all the different things fall into place about why it could happen. And that was for me incredibly rewarding. Uh, question number five, what are your top three tips to aspiring writers? Okay, um, I think that one of my top tips, in fact, my top tip is when an idea falls into your head, take notice of it, put it down on the page and start teasing it out to see where you can go with it. I so often have people come up to me, you know, or if I meet someone and they go, what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer. And they go, oh, I've got an idea for a book. And they go on to tell me this idea that they've got as if I'm going to take their idea and put it on the page and spend all those years working on it. Yeah, that's not going to happen. What I feel like saying to these people is, you know what? You were given that idea. The universe has given you that idea. You need to now work on it. You need to take it and run with it. I'm not running with your idea. I'm going to run with my ideas. So, uh, yeah, that would be my top tip. When an idea comes to you, run with it. My second tip, I guess, relates a little bit to the pantry. Recognize when your story is not working for you and sort of enjoy that process of changing it of approaching it in a different way, of throwing out big swaths of it, of changing it up and making it completely different from where it is. Because when you find yourself at a bit of a block, and I don't like, I've been always told there is no such thing as writer's block, and so I don't like to use the word block, but I just mean a, a block in the, yeah, a block in your writing, is just go back and probably take out a large chunk of it, even though that hurts. It really hurts. But in the end, I think that you come out with something when you're standing in front of the pantry or whatever your equivalent is, that is a sign that something is not working in the book. And if something's not working, then you've got to throw something out and, and rethink. So that would be my tip number two. And my third top tip 
Okay, my third top tip is that you have to have stamina to write a book. When you write a book, it's like maybe 60 or 50, 60, 70,000 words all in a row. It's a huge effort and and it's multiple drafts. For me, I write, well, for this last book, there were 17 drafts and that's a, that's a hell of a lot of writing. It took me quite a few years, but so that's okay. You know, it's actually great. I get to the end of that and I feel like I have run a marathon, but I feel really satisfied and I feel like I have given the book every due respect and I've given my readers every due respect by spending all that time on making sure that it's 100% right. But it is a big effort and I think there's probably plenty of people who could be fantastic writers, but they don't have the stamina and... I don't know where the stamina comes from. Maybe it just comes from a belief that it is worth spending time on something. And yeah, so that would be my third top tip is to just just have the stamina to push through with your idea and get it down on the page and rewrite, rewrite. And, um, and that's probably going to really stand you in good stead to get a book out in the end. Okay, so uh, now I'm going to put my typewriter to one side. I'm going to pick up my book and I'm going to start narrating the first chapter of It's Not You, It's Me. Day one, Friday, 29th of February, 1980, Holly. And Holly is the character from Melbourne in 2020. So this is her in a different time frame. 4.16pm. This is what Holly Fitzgerald knew for sure. She'd been out for lunch, she'd come home, she'd gone inside. End of story. So she was having trouble figuring out what she was doing, lying on a nature strip, staring up at the sky, blades of grass pricking against her wrists and the backs of her legs. Her bones felt bruised. She suspected there was a very big chance she would tip out the entire contents of her queasy stomach if she lifted her head off the ground. There was a gap where her memory was supposed to fit. She remembered sitting at lunch, celebrating turning 40, toasting the new decade, like turning 40 and 2020 were good things. So far, and it was only February, her best friend had died Millions of hectares of bush had burned in worst-in-a-century bushfires. A thing called coronavirus was sweeping the world. People were saying Australia might have to go into lockdown, whatever that meant. And just to make the perfect start to the perfect year even more perfect, her boyfriend had gone to Sydney for a golfing long weekend and was missing her, boy her birthday altogether. And now here she was, lying face up on the footpath. Her senses prickled with strangeness. Strange smells, strange sounds, strange light. She struggled up onto her elbows, keeping her stomach in check by a sheer effort of will. The street was quiet, the neighbourhood unfamiliar, the house, house styles varied. A Californian bungalow here, a white two-storey there, a Spanish hacienda on the other side of the road. On a busy main drag visible beyond the corner a few metres to her right, traffic was bumper to bumper, except all the cars were long and boaty, like from America in the 70s, 
and they were all driving on the wrong side of the road. A young guy leant into her field of vision. Trinity, he said, you okay? Add strange person calling her a strange name to the mix. Holly looked down the length of her body. She was wearing a faded pink t-shirt with disco sucks written across the front of it. Her legs poked out of a pair of cut-off denim shorts and she was wearing black Converse runners. But none of them were hers. The canvas runners, the t-shirt, she liked disco. The shorts, the legs, all of them belonged to someone else. She sat all the way up and went to put her head in her hands to cover her eyes to think for a moment. But her hands weren't hers either. These ones were smaller than she was used to. The nail polish was baby blue. She'd just turned 40. She didn't do baby blue nails. Holly wiggled the fingers to make sure she could operate them, turned the palms towards her, then away. What are you doing? The young guy asked her. She'd forgotten he was there. Time felt clunky and pulled out of shape, as if one thing didn't necessarily follow on from another. My hands, she said, holding them up to him in explanation. What about them? The young guy asked. Look at them. He clasped them for a couple of seconds. They're clammy, he said, holding on to them. Trinity, are you okay? What happened? She had no idea why he was calling her Trinity, but as she stared back at him, a name came into her brain. She had insight, clarity, knowledge. Lewis, she said, clicking her fingers and pointing them gun-like at him. Yeah, you live next door. Yeah, he stretched the word out like bubblegum, stalling for time, before asking again, third time lucky, are you okay? Holly thought for a moment, giving the question due consideration. Ah, no, not really. Understatement of the century, or technically, as it would turn out, understatement of two centuries. You want to stand up? Lewis asked, hauling her up onto her feet. As she stood up, a hank of long blonde hair fell forward. The tips dyed black. She grabbed it and brought it up in front of her eyes, turned the hair over, watched the light catch on it. It was cut into layers, soft, shiny, pretty, pale, the black edge in stark contrast. My hair, she said, holding out at him. Yeah, it's not mine. Lewis shook his head as if he didn't quite get the joke. In fact, now that she was starting to get her bearings, she noticed that her voice didn't sound like hers either. Dizziness overwhelmed her and she sat back down on the nature strip, her legs not fit to hold her upright. Lewis squatted down, back down beside her, concern all over his features. There was a lag between what she was seeing and hearing and the fact of it settling into her brain. How could her hair not be hers? Her legs, her hands, her fingernails, her voice. Why were the cars on the wrong side of the road? Where was she? How had she got here? Lewis reached over and picked up a fringed suede shoulder bag that was lying on the ground close by. Handed it to her. Handed her a pair of mirror-lensed aviator sunglasses that had been lying next to it. She took them both simply because she didn't have the energy to explain that they weren't hers and opened the bag. Inside was a leather purse with flowers embossed on it a pack of cigarettes, without the gruesome health warning or accompanying photo, a Zippo lighter, a Ray-Ban glasses case, and a thick book, a thin book of poetry by Walt Whitman. No phone. 
And by the way, going back to the fact of cigarettes, this definitely wasn't her bag. She put her hands up to her eyes, pushing blackness into her vision. She just wanted to be home, surrounded by things she recognised. Her, her own hands and legs at bare minimum. I'm sorry, I don't know what's going on. Can you call me an Uber, she said, keeping her hands over her eyes, trying to steady herself. A what? An Uber. I just want to get home. Home? Lewis said. Then nothing more. Holly looked up to see him pointing to a house a couple of doors down the quiet street. He seemed to be indicating that it was her house, but it wasn't. It definitely wasn't. For one thing, it wasn't on her street, and surely your most basic expectation was that your house would be on your street. Lewis stood up and held out his hand to bring her back up level with him. She looked up at him, frustration overwhelming her, wanting to yell, no, you don't understand. That's not my house. This isn't my neighbourhood. It's not my name. What are you talking about? You don't even know me. But it was exhausting to even contemplate saying so many words out loud. Besides, there was something about Lewis that this body trusted. Holly could feel it in her slowly settling guts. So she abdicated all responsibility over to the unfamiliar body she found herself in and let him bring her back up to standing. Together, hand in hand, they walked towards the house he'd pointed at. There was a neat green lawn with a concrete path cutting straight through its centre from footpath to veranda. The veranda was big and breezy and cast a deep shadow over the front windows. The roof was broad and shingled with a large attic window. Rising out of the lawn on the right-hand side was an enormous pine tree with a gnarly trunk and down left ran a driveway. It was not her weatherboard Victorian with tiny front yard and no room for a driveway. Absolutely not her house. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me on to be a part of this podcast. I hope that um, you enjoyed the session. Bye. I love it. This is a fresh take on the body swapping, soul swapping theme, and it's going to be another hit. And I really loved how Gabrielle had to convince herself of the mechanics behind it. If you don't believe in your story, then it's hard for readers to believe it. But still, 17 drafts, right? It gives you hope to keep persevering with your own manuscript, doesn't it? And of course, I particularly love the typewriter inspiration behind this novel, being a lover of typewriters myself. It's Not You, It's Me by Gabrielle Williams is out now with Alan and Unwin. Now, if you're on draft five or seven or 17 or draft zero, yes, draft zero is a thing, or even if you only have an inkling of an idea and you'd love to publish your own YA novel one day, check out our course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults. That's what published author Catherine Pelosi did. Here's her story. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course will help you find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love. You'll also have your very own tutor providing personalised feedback on your writing. 
Here's what Catherine Pelosi says. When I uh, first decided I wanted to write, I was actually living in the UK and I just all of a sudden started thinking about stories and writing. I thought, wow, I'd really like to write for children, but I had no idea how. So when I came back to Sydney, I was like, I need to find out how to do this. And I found the course Writing for Children and Young Adults at the Australian Writers' Centre and I enrolled and it was brilliant from the start. It was just like entering this whole world of like magic and happiness and I've never left because it's just so great learning about writing and children's books. For me the most useful part of the course was learning about all the different components of storytelling. You might have an idea but how do you actually put it all together? and there's so many different elements. Learning all the technical side, is there's a lot to it. The presenter at the um, course was really supportive. And I think also being uh, with other writers, other aspiring writers is really important because you need that community. Writing can be quite isolating. You're often just at your computer typing away. So um, I've met people through the course I've done at the Australian Writers' Centre and kept in touch. So it's a great way to find your writing buddies as well. When I found out that I was being published, it was the best feeling ever. I, the happiest day I can remember so far. It was really, really exciting. Uh, if I think back to when I first did the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, which was my first sort of entry into writing for children, to the moment I got published, it's sort of unbelievable that it happened. An awesome feeling. Now I can call myself a children's book author, which is amazing. And I have my first book coming out, Quark's Academy, and I've signed two more book deals. I would say if you want to do a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, definitely do it. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.